today on Building the Open Metaverse. Unity is transforming slowly introducing those things into the engine where you get the segmentation. You can load the data, separate the processing from the information, and actually think about your game in such a way. Welcome to Building the Open Metaverse, where technology experts discuss how the community is building the open metaverse together. Hosted by Patrick Cozy from Cesium and Mark Petit from Epic Games. My name is Mark Petit, I'm from Epic Games, and my co-host is Patrick Cozy from Cesium. Hey Patrick, how are you today? Hey Mark, I'm doing fantastic. I always love to chat with pioneers and to learn a lot about the, the history of where we've been and where we're going. Yeah, well, we have two pioneers today. We're happy to welcome André Gauthier. André was the former founder of Kedara, the makers of Fieldbox and then Motion Builder, and has been a software architect at both Autodesk and Unity. André, we're super happy to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You may know that we like to start the show by asking our guests their background and their journey to the metaverse. So please tell us about yours. <laughs> All right. So I would say that my 3D adventure, or that part started with a company named Kedara. So in 1993, we founded a company, Michel Bessner and Sebastien Lavier and myself on the company named Kedera, and then we started working on a product called Filmbox, and that eventually became Motion Builder. So what we were interested in at that point was we made a contract with Production Pascal Blais. We were dealing with a motion control camera, a two-ton camera that needed to move in space, something, and there was nothing to drive it. So working with them, we created a kernel that would make that camera move in space. And I got fascinated with the idea of the virtual meeting the real world. So talking with Michelle Sebastian, I said, hey, let's, let's make a business out of that. We were doing a consulting for Sartinage and for, to pay our uh, bills. While uh, Michelle and Sebastian were consulting there, I was building the kernel. So we started this, this adventure. We ended up in the motion capture. We ended up building these things. At some point, we had to exist in the 3D world. We created a format that was the film box format, which called FDX, and we needed to transfer information through from that evolved. We ended up being acquired by Alias and then at Autodesk. So, so that's where we saw each other, Mark. Yep. <laughs> and then through uh, the adventures after that, did some stories into cloud and some aspects of dealing with general storage, something came back to Autodesk and finally started the Montreal office of uh, Unity and been doing that for the last 10 years. And I'm just uh, leaving that position right now and then looking at what I will do next. So, so John Gaika is also one of our guests this season, and, and Filmbox played a big role in the making of The Matrix back in 1999. Could you tell us how it was used? Yeah, it was interesting. So like I said, we got interested in the hardware side of things. So how do you connect virtual to the hardware part? We started with uh, this motion control camera, then we ended up in a, a studio called Magiscop, and they had a polymus system, kind of magnetic ball, you know, with sensors, something. It was... And we wanted to connect those things and get the data out of that. And it was all distorted. And those things were warped by metal, something. So we said, hey, we need to correct the information. So we started doing the drivers to record those things. And then we were looking for everything that was actually device related. And we ended up talking with production from Matrix. And they needed to do this rig with uh, 130 cameras. You know, we use fixed cameras, old, and they needed to trigger those things in real time, making those things kind of 
take pictures and did that. So we got, we ended up adding that to the functionality of Filmbox at the time. And we ended up driving everything that related to this, uh, those famous shots. Obviously we did the hardware part of that. They did the hardware, which is <laughs> cleaning up the data after that and do actually something useful out of this. Yeah, it's interesting because there was Motion Builder. I mean, in 2002, Filmbox got renamed Motion Builder as it focused on motion capture. It was always about real time. And it has that in its DNA and got used for motion capture, performance capture, and ultimately even virtual production. I mean, we may remember that Motion Builder was at the heart of the first avatar virtual production system at Lightstorm back in the day. So is there anything specific about that architecture where that gives this real time support yeah. in Motion Builder? You, you could not find, I mean, it hasn't, to this day, it hasn't been replicated. I mean, there is Motion Builder still alive and there is no application actually has, can do what, it, what it's been doing. And so we really thought about the data flow and the capture of the system, synchronization and everything. 3D was just a side effect. It was a visualization for us. So 3D wasn't that the hard work we're trying to do. We're trying to capture all those events. The idea of Filmbox, and it, stupidly enough, in 94, 93, we say we want to be a part of the set, recording the lights and controlling the equipment. And so that was the dream. I don't know if there was a huge market for that, but at that time we thought it was a fantastic idea. So the, the whole kernel of Motion Builder knows about when things happen and synchronize and then bring the data and then it's completely decoupled from the rendering and the rendering picks up the information when it needs it for the specific frame they need to record. So that was kind of a bizarre aspect. We could synchronize with decks, tape decks and pre-rolls and videos. So we, we really were interested in making sure the data was timed correctly. And nobody did that again. The film does, specifically in some aspects, but as a commercial product, that kind of a, was a special aspect of, that, of the product. It looks like it had more potential that never got really realized and kind of had to wait for 10 years for game engines to kind of pick up the real-time yep. agenda. So why? It's a niched problem. And so Motion Builder was answering that one. The place where Motion Builder didn't follow up was... Obviously, as it's niche, then you don't invest the same way in those products as you would with general products. And the game engine were really, really good at the simulation aspects, the rendering. Obviously, the rendering got updated, updated. I think the last render of Motion Builder was updated in 2006 or something. So essentially, visual aspects was there. And then the more and more people want to have the visual realism that they have in games, we're super, and now it's, it's, it's amazing. So we're, we're closing the gap between software rendering and real-time rendering. So I think the gap is in this data recording, data assessing part of the thing. And so studios are kind of fixing that. It's still not necessarily yet a priority for any game engines because it's still niche. So people are finding solutions to make sure that they fix that part of the problem. But obviously the rendering and the capacities of the game engine draw people toward them and makes a lot of sense. It's funny, we were in a meeting where I got told, you know, we need to replace that VX. We need to replace Motion Builder. <laughs> and I was at Unity and then they had to say, by whatever Unity and Unreal and we need to replace all those things. So it's smirking because it's kind of a nice thing to be said. Yeah, so. Although for the record, remember Project Sextant, we, we did an attempt yes. to build yes. more capabilities on Motion Builder back in the yes, day yes. and for some yes. internal reasons, it, it did not see the light of day. But I mean, to be honest, I have some regrets. I mean, in hindsight, we were down the right path and we just were not, but it was a financial crisis 2009, you know, it was hard to invest at that time. So, But those things will reappear. So, so AR and some of those problems 
show up in a new way, which isn't niche. So they, it will come back in other forms and other shape. So obviously th those problems are, will be the same. If you're, you want to integrate yourself into some kind of a real-time environment, you need to mind the moment where things happen, what you're doing, all of those things. So, so it will in another form with a lot more market behind it. Essentially. I believe it was maybe 1996 when you released FBX uh, with Filmbox 1.5. And then over time, uh, you released an SDK with this focus on interoperable 3D scenes and objects, especially around animation. And even though the format stayed proprietary, it did become a de facto standard. So I was wondering if you could maybe bring us through the journey of FBX, then also tell us if you ever considered even open sourcing FBX. I would have loved that. So anyway, so let, let's, uh, okay. So the FBX was born as BX, which is Filmbox file format, what it was. So, and the first part of Filmbox was running inside Softenage as a plugin, because we didn't want to do the 3D part. We wanted to do this data part and the recording part and multi-threading part and all of that. And we ended up not being able to do that because when you run inside a 3D software, threading and Anyway, so it's, it wasn't trivial. So we had to separate ourselves from that. So we needed the information and we weren't a modeler, weren't a renderer, weren't any of that. So we needed the information in. So we started writing plugins for Softimage and the Power Animator at the time. And it was uh, Alias, uh, not Alias, um, the one is uh, Lightwave. Yeah. Lightwave. And so we started wanting to get the information inside Filmbox at the time and display that information. And we started with simple models and we textures and then we needed deformable things and then we needed to capture the recording of the animation and then we needed to send the animation back so we created plugins and then slowly just for our own survival we had a plugin for the major the three major first three packages and then once we got i would say decent at that people started actually exchanging between themselves so it's not that we had the vision of a file format for everybody <laughs> it was just it was just for us to exist and we wanted the visuals to be as good and when we were working with studios they wanted to see the things that looked like what they had in their 3d packages so that's how it evolved and then the more you start solving those problems the more you realize it's complicated it's actually non-trivial and then after that as we got acquired by alias alias got interested in fbx so then they, they wanted to use it the X in other products. So we started you know, auto studio integration and others. And then when you guys came in Mac uh, with the, as Autodesk at that time was then Autodesk, we did that or AutoCAD and Rivet. And then so then the VX took on a wider set of problems and we had to deal with the integration of all those products because 3D information has no standards. It didn't, and it's a complicated standard. So we had to start to fix that problem. So it took uh, to quit. I would say 14 to 20 years for this thing to actually be usable in a way that makes sense. And, and I would love to say it's like the fault, but the analogy I use with math is it's like the fault. So when a fault end doesn't work, it's like your phone doesn't work. When it does work, you don't see it. But everything that needs to happen for this thing to work is crazy. So it took us a long, long time to get to that. But through those experiences, at least the format became good. And I think it's when we got that alias slash other that's that it started exploding. People use, use it more. We got to invest a bit more. The team was a bit bigger, so we could actually start doing something with this. So what about open sourcing it? Okay. So that, well, at the time there's FKers and all kinds of tricks and something. So I'll, I'll just talk for a moment, uh, one, one or two minutes about that. The specific thing. So people don't understand the level of problems you have when you transfer data from one package to the other. 
yeah, a mesh is a mesh is a mesh, an animation is an animation is an animation. The, the problem is if you're Y up, Z up, left hand, right hand, if you're Euler, ZYX, YZX, or something, as soon as you start moving that data, the package where you go doesn't understand the world the same way, and you need to transform that data in a way that makes sense. One specific example I'm using, the simplest of it is the field of view for a camera. So there's field of view and focal length. So if you think about it, focal length is a distance, field of view is an angle. If you animate a focal length with Bayesian curves, and then you need to transfer that to a focal view, it's not anymore. You cannot transfer the keyframes. You need to resample the whole thing. You need to manage all those. Nothing is simple because, and it requires kind of a kind of knowledge that nobody has. It's not, oh my God, I know. This is how you transfer YZX, you learn angle into this. So it becomes extremely specialized knowledge that needs to be there in order for the data to make sense to the recipient. So it took a hell of a long time to actually do that. So I would love for that knowledge <laughs> to be transferred. At the time, without it as something, everybody's a bit worried about IP or is this part of Motion Builder? Are we giving away special sauce, something? I don't think we're in the same situation at all right now. It would be interesting to re-engage with those companies and see if we could actually extract that and then give that to the community so that that worked. It would be sad that we resolved the problem that we solved, I don't know, 17 years ago, again, as we're doing with new formats and dealing with those things, because they have the same problem. The problem is it hasn't gone away. You know, Patrick and I and a bunch of other people are involved in Metaverse Standard Forum, where we're trying to align things like USD and GLTF and establish a common basis to enable lossless interoperability. So a lot of things you mentioned uh, do you think they could be lifted from FBX and brought into the world of USD and GLTF to accelerate the roadmap there? I would really love that. Yes, I think it can. It may be some good use of my time in the future months or something, try to start to talk to a few people and see that. <laughs> but it, it, for me, that was a bit that was a bit disappointed because we're, we're tackling a lot of difficult problems and the problems of the metaverse have a new set of new problems that they're there. So making sure that we combine the forces of what already was there to help driving what needs to be there. You know, in USD, you can have your know, translate, rotate in any order and something. It's great when you write the file, but when you read it, then you need to interpret all those things into your context. So if we can help people deal with that, would be I, I think it would be really useful. It's interesting. I think people feel we're ready to tackle F-curves, function curves, <laughs> finally, 30 years later. Well, well, we'll see what we can do about that, but at least I, I'm happy to bring the knowledge or conversations, uh, all of that with this, but I would, hopefully we can actually pull the code out. So it would be great. So I believe back in 2004, Kadera released Human IK, a middleware library that included the motion builder IK solvers, then also a, a model for defining characters. That model really became a de facto standard in the industry and it allowed folks like Stefano, Coraza, who's another guest this season uh, to create a very successful mocap library, would love to hear your thoughts on how do we take this farther and can we one day standardize avatars? What was good at that moment, it was under your governance, Mark Autodesk, we, we, we decided that we would carry the full body description coming from Motion Builder, the two other products, which was Pax and Maya and then this machine Maya. And because that's where a lot of animators would do that. And we already realized that for Filmbox, Motion Builder, it was a market for the, the game companies. So we were already at package the solvers for the full body IK to the game companies because they suddenly for. So 
was already extracted and something. So why not leverage that so that the authoring could move away, move from, from one package to another? And so you mentioned it really well. So there's a description aspect of it, and there's a solver aspect of it. So this is a character, so you mentioned the hand, this is what it is. This is so what it looks like, and you get in all kinds of trouble because what is the hand like that? What's the angle when that's so standardization and orientations, all that. So that was part of the information. So that's useful. The second part of it is actually solving as you move those things with IK and something, how this, so the solver reacts and move the character. And how do you transfer the data to the game engine? Because how does that authoring then exist somewhere else? Yeah. In, in another space and then reacts correctly. But the simple part of it, the description of something actually moves really well. The challenge is when a solver changes over time, one parameter changes everything. If you don't support that parameter, that parameter is on, the effect of that thing will be different. So as you start to deal with standards, then your description is interesting. The solving, then version of solver, where it lands, where it goes, is something that is bothered me for a while and we've struggled with that because we were releasing Max and Mayan at the same time and the solvers weren't compatible and then people would move data from one to the other and they weren't doing the right thing. So we started releasing the solver at the same time as the plugins. So then you realize that you need to think about the software in a different way. You spent 10 years at Unity, said you just left to do other things, and I have a few questions for you. So the first one would be, so you created that Montreal studio, I think, how big is it now? 300, 400? No, it's a thousand now, so it's pretty big. <laughs> a thousand people? That's crazy. I know you were very careful in, in building up the studio with a certain culture. Can you speak to that culture that you, what was your vision for the Montreal studio culture at Unity? Yeah, so, so it's a bit selfish, but I wanted to create a place where I wanted to work. So, <laughs> and I think there was a few things that we were looking for, especially when we were interviewing the leaders at the beginning. What I wanted is, first thing I was looking for is curiosity. So essentially people that are actually wanting to make a difference and have curiosity in something and experience. I was looking for experience, but the problem is when you get experience, sometimes you get jaded. There's some that go, I've seen this. And you don't want that. That's not the spirit. So you want experience, you want that curiosity. But the last really, really important part for me was kindness, actual kindness and interest for human beings. And we would interview people with that because it was started to be the way the Montreal studio started is a conversation with Joachim and, and David at the time when it was CEO and they go, what do you need? And then it was kind of an independent business, find a place, hire people, do, you know, so it's a privilege at that time. It's kind of a startup with non, a non-startup with everything about the Unity brand and the Unity product. It was great. So we could do and decided to do this. So we did that. We hired the leaders. And then as we grew, the culture propagates because I always tell people, you have the company you deserve. So if you want to be treated with kindness, treat people with kindness. If you you want curiosity toward what you're trying to do, treat people with curiosity. And so that was a kind of heart of that. And then it built, it became extremely warm as a culture. And when we were interviewing people, I was always, at the beginning, always interviews the leaders. I was the last interviewee, making sure that we had that culture of that. And we were meeting every single employee as they were coming and talking about that, talking about the responsibility of that, because it, it's not just the responsibility of leadership, it's also the responsibility of everybody coming in. So you want to be treated like that. You need to be open. And especially with these days, a lot of people are rage or angry and something. And that is the way they hate. Then you end up with the place where it looks like that, you know? So, so I think 
all of those things made it fun, made it with creative people. They were entrepreneurial by temperament. So it was an interesting, really an interesting ride. So if you think about your stint at Unity, you were initially focused on animation with Mechanim, Mechanim Acquisition, Bob Lancio and the gang. Then you basically took charge of the editor. But then recently you were VP of technology and you were actively involved in ECS slash DOT. So the entity yep. component system and the data oriented tech stack. So can you give us a quick primer on what those technologies are and why? And the are important yeah. and the potential benefits to a game engine like Unity. So it's interesting. So I evolved from the editor part. I had a conversation with Joachim and Mike Acton at the time. So Mike was a back, I would say, almost an ECS activist. And so he believed in that profoundly. And we had many conversations. And he actually, the way he articulated those things were, were really, really, I think, forward looking in ways that are, I hadn't thought about. And so I was taking care of the editor or something, and I started mining what we call runtime applications. At so runtime applications is any application that is created using Unity, but it creates an app. It's not a game. It's an application, essentially. So either for the building, the construction market, or for architecture, or for something. So using Unity to build an application, but uses Unity. So it's essentially its own thing. And I started looking at this, and I realized that most of the problem is in making sure that the information is what you care about. And in a game engine, when you're by yourself, you build all those things together. You both build a code, you build a data, and they're all jointly turned. What was interesting about the docs position says, separate the information from the processing. And if you start looking at that, because normal C-sharp, C++, code, mix objects, and all those things are intertwined. If you look at the web world, the web world, works with databases and then code. And then code queries databases, does something, puts data with databases. If you think about a game, that's what a game does. A game, you have get me all of the players, query the environment, what is happening? So who are the things I'm interested in? I'm interested in the enemies of something. Okay, good. Get them to, all right. What about the world? Where are the closest friends, enemies, something? You do a query, you process information, you, pro you provide the information back. So, what was interesting is that segmentation brought kind of those concepts back into the game engine in a way that is performance. Because obviously, in a game, an SQL query wouldn't be that probable. It does, you know, for some aspects of, the, of that, but that was where the interest was. And so Unity is transforming slowly, introducing by slowly, and a lot of work introducing those things into the engine where you get the segmentation, you can load the data separate the processing from the information and actually think about your game in such a way. And that's what made the web the web. So essentially this way you can have a lot of services with central information and those services can evolve over time. And it really is a good pattern for what you need to do. It separates the file format problem from the code problem and it allowed everything to be performed. So I started to be interested as I was looking that into runtime and then talking with uh, Joachim and Mike to say, hey, come and join us, and then start mining that, trying to harmonize that story around what we were trying to do. I wanted to ask, I mean, I have some battle scars myself in terms of shipping a product regularly, but then also trying to transition and upgrade that core technology. So I was curious how they're navigating that and how it's going. And it always a debate. So do you write a new or do you refactor? And both of those things are painful. In one case, you carry your bugs with you, and then 
Or you say, no, 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 you're reinventing. And then when you reinvent it, you forget about the three use cases that we haven't thought about in the new thing. And then you end up with two systems coexisting for a long time. So in this case, what we ended up doing is side by side. So essentially both can exist. So you decide how much dots you're doing was more what it is about. But if you look at the evolution of, of Unity, so the complexity of Unity is it supports 20-some platforms. It has tests, suites for all of those things. Every time code is checked in, tested against devices and all those things. So as you need to evolve that, at some point, you need to retire some of those. And then you need to tell the customers that you will do that. So how do you that? So Epic does generational, Epic 4, Epic 3, Epic 4, Epic 5, so something. Unity tended to be more continuous. So I think it is a combination of that. So you need to be able to deal with the breaking change, but it means that you need teams to maintain both the old and the new. And there's no simple answer to this one. I would I would love to say, yeah, ah, we sat down, wise people thought about it. No, it isn't. You need to upgrade APIs and you need to decide how much pain you will throw on your customers as you do those evolution. Yes. So the good part is productions tend to stay on a, a given generation and they kind of decide if they hop on a new one where they decide and you need to be synchronized with them to know when they can rely on you, you know, the next generation. So at least there's generational breaks also with the customers, but it means that you need to maintain the old things because they may stay on your stuff for a long time. How do you interpret the key capabilities that they made the success of Unity, when you look back at why did this game engine become so popular? At the heart of it was the appearance of, of the iPhone, yeah, the heart of being. It was a game engine on a Mac. Who did that? <laughs> but the iPhone appeared and it, it made it for an opportunity. Nothing was doing that. And then Android something. And if you look at the extension of that, it means device support. And the rest of ours is really hard. You're probably leaving that joy uh, yourself on your end, uh, Mark. And you get the, that weird device that supports, I don't know, OpenGL 1.0 or something. And it so happened there's 700 million people having it. So there's substantial. So the first strength unit was this empty device. And the fact that we did support that. The other one is you get running really quickly. You come in, you start, you drop stuff, you type a few lines of code and it runs in the editor and data changes. And that, that of it was... was I think what's amazing at the heart of what it is. So there's a simplicity to it and there's that. So now it expands in different ways because it is becoming bigger. So the quality of the renderings is reaching out to the standards of the industry. And But at the heart of it was the fact that it was accessible, that it was reaching all devices and that it was accessible both for the creators and for the people. I think that is the heart of it. Now with the docs and something, it is about scale, scale projects, something. If you look at Epic, it started more in the high-end part of the world. And then Epic is needing the devices as it's going down. I think it's coming from the other side. So it's just the availability for everything and then reaching out to kind of a higher-end uh, version of that. So, yeah. So let's turn the lens. What's the next big thing for Unity? How do you see what's going to define the engine in the future? So there's scale content, scale generations. That's one big aspect of it. The other part is what is happening with the industry in the digital twin or other version of that term, metaverse. Okay, so AR is coming in. AR won't be a fluke. So the devices are already happening. They're not, your phone is not a great device for AR. Wearables will be 
obviously the big ones will do good wearables. It will replace the phone eventually. It's obvious because as you look at the world and you'll have the information. And then as that is happening, then it means that consumers are looking at 3D in context. Builders are building 3D in context. Already the industry, as you know, is doing you know, car generation demos and all of that. So that's the whole other slew of things, which is more related to the real world, real objects in a retail slash experiential creation environment. It's true for Epic looking at that, it's true for Unity also. It's true for NVIDIA, it's true for a lot of people looking at this, they see, they see that the virtual world will meet the real world. We don't know exactly where it will tie in. We have a few hypotheses, but so I think that's true for Unity, that's true for the whole industry. I remember a few years back, we discussed uh, in-place editing. I think it, it's a very important concept because the, the metaverse is going to be a permanent 3D world and augmented reality is our real world, which is persistent by definition. So is, is that something that you still see as part of the vision? If you look where that will go, it means that the object we will want to create will need to exist in all our realities. Some of them, not all of them, some of them. <laughs> And what does that mean? Mean that the appearance of this thing needs to be able to multi-platform becomes something a bit wider as a, it's not I run an iPhone. It means I, I exist inside Roblox and inside any virtual environment because I need my thing to be able to exist that. So what does that mean? It means something about the appearance of thing, but it also means something about how we simulate. What's the behavior of that thing? How do I make that one? And because it won't be, it will work in, um, uh, how do you call it, the, you know, castle, uh, there's an expression about it, wall garden. So it will work in wall garden for a while. Uh, at some point, consumers will want those things to exist kind of across those things. And I think as an industry, this is where all those standards become interesting. How do we make those solvers be able to behave in that environment? And there's already hints of how to do those things because new problems, new problem in that context, lender problems. So I think that is what is in front of us. If we together are able to solve those, those things, then we'll, we'll start to be able to carry those objects from one place to another. And I think that's the dream of all of us. How do you author those things? So you're right. You want to author that in place in my environment. I want to be able to do that. I want to author that in place with my skills. As I'm a professional animator or I'm a kid, I want to make my character walk. I probably won't use the same techniques. So in one case, we'll use AI and I'll use my phone. I'll record my movement and I'll want that to be applicable to what I'm doing. In some other case, I'll be a lot more specific. I'll use different tools. I'll be able to do that. But you want to be able to add to that whatever it's in the end. So in place editing, how we run those solvers and how do we actually transform that information is, I think, at the heart of what we're trying to do. I'm not sure. Every industry is thinking about that this way because everybody right now is trying to kind of mine their interests related to this. But as a group of people thinking about that, I think these are the problems that we need to solve. You mentioned in a minute, in a world when you need to create something, it needs to last forever. Standards are going to be even more important. So. Yes. And so that's nice. So that's why USD is super important as part of that. But I think there's a set of conversation that will be interesting to look at as the few of us and more and more people that are have tried to do that in the past, if you Roblox, and then it's not that they're impossible problems, they're actually solvable problems, but create awareness of those problems and start thinking about those problems collectively, I think that would be wonderful. 
Cool. So an interesting moment in your life. You are you just finished a, a very successful stint in a major company. What's next for Legotier? So we, we talked a bit, create mind space first, because when you're in one environment, you, you take the problems and you try to apply them to your environment all the time. And then you become kind of maybe you lack perspective. Remove my mind out of this. And then I want to pick up those problems again, but with a different light and see if we can help. Some companies are a bit more myopic relative to those problems. Some companies are a bit more wide relative to that. So I'm curious to see how I would love to use the expertise and things I've learned in order to actually bring that forward. And I don't know in what context yet. So I want to engage conversation with different people and see you know, where we're at, where we see the problem is and try to help in one way or the other. And I think then elimination will happen. But right now it's more about being inspired and giving space. Andre, look, thank you for sharing all these stories, your passion, your insights to wrap up the episode. We'd love for you to give a shout out to a person or people or organization. It's not the specific because I, the, the privilege when you work in that industry, the people you meet is crazy, crazy brains everywhere. I mean, really. So my guess is let's not resolve problems that we already solved. Let's try to actually get the industry to collaborate. So I would love that Autodesk and media is in the unity and the epic and on the things that aren't, let's actually get together and get those things out of the way so that you can run your business and do what you're great at. So Andre, Andre Gauthier, thank you so much. You've contributed so much to our industry over the years through the work at Kedara, Autodesk and 10 years at Unity. So thank you very much for being with us today. And thank you very much to our listeners. We're super happy to have you with us. You can reach us at our new website, buildingtheopenmetaverse.org. Uh, send us email at feedback at buildingthemetaverse.org and tell us what you want to hear and what you think about this company. Thank you very much, Andre. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. And thank you, everybody.